Hey everybody, just wanted to thank you all for tuning in, and to send out a crowdsourcing bat signal of sorts. I will be in the Las Vegas, San Francisco, Los Angeles area this July, and I would love to hear some suggestions of scientists doing interesting work. So, if any of you have a scientist in mind who works in any of those cities, uh, and would like to hear from them on this show, please send me your suggestions via email at uh, sthpod at gmail.com. That's sthpod at gmail.com. Or hit me on Twitter at simhawk1. That's S-I-M-H-A-W-K and the number one. Thanks in advance. Now, without further ado, in today's episode, we have Dr. Yiping He, who is an assistant professor of pathology at Duke University. Enjoy. Scientist the Human Podcast, commencing. Welcome to this episode of Scientist the Human Podcast. I'm your host, Simranjit Singh, and I'm here with Dr. Yiping He at Duke University at the Department of Pathology. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Yeah. Welcome here. And uh, Dr. Yi, or Yiping, yeah. as you would like to be called. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yiping, so you work on uh, some interesting cancers. Uh, you work on uh, brain cancers and prostate cancer, yes? Are the two main focuses? Primarily, it's brain tumor. Brain tumor. Because sorry. we are at the brain tumor center. Okay. And we know a lot of, actually, our friends, patients here, visiting here, our supporters. So they are all dealing with GBM, mostly dealing with GBM, horrible disease. Okay, so a GBM is a... Glioblastoma. A glioblastoma. Yeah. So can we talk about that? What is a glioblastoma? It's a pretty, pretty aggressive uh, brain tumor. And, uh, I mean, that's pretty much all you have to know. And patients typically, they would, uh, the median survival is about 12 months to 15 months mm-hmm. from the time of diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And it's not a very good way to treat them. Okay. Like, although at Duke, no, have been, there was, have been a lot of things going on, so things are getting better. Okay. But that's what we actually focus on in the brain tumor center here. So, yeah. so what makes glioblastoma so aggressive? It is because... Uh, Okay, so basically, it's very difficult to uh, find out in advance. Unlike, for example, the other extreme would be prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. Right? It started with a low grade and then slowly becomes resistant to hormone therapy right? and become worse in 10 years, many years. But GBM, glioblastoma, is very different. It's by the time you find out, it's already advanced state, especially primary GBM. You know, there were different, many different kinds of brain tumors, but primary GBM is one of the worst ones. Okay. And by the, once patients, you know, been diagnosed, they are frequently, um, let's say they have a seizure and came in and find out, oh, it's GBM. It's already too late. Mm. And they are very diffusive, so it's very difficult to surgically remove them. You know? ah, I see. So it's very, very uh, bad. Another thing oh. is it's in the cortex, so right. it's confined, a confined compartment. Right. So it's very difficult. It's, Quite different from uh, you know cancer in other organs mm-hmm. because when you know the environment is a challenge, right? Right. It's yeah. difficult to deliver the drugs. Yeah. And to do the surgery is also mm-hmm. sophisticated. Right. So it's a very bad disease. Right. Yeah. So to to surgically remove a brain tumor, it's very complicated, obviously, because you have to be very careful not to damage the surrounding tissue. You could lead to impairments. Right. 
And then I guess the drug delivery is because of the a difference in the blood brain barrier. Uh, that is one issue, mm-hmm. and also I think it it really has a lot to do with. Okay, we're gonna take a brief pause here, Doctor Yiping. He has a a customer. Okay. And we're back. All right. So where were we? So the uh, so the blood brain barrier is uh, is an issue when it comes I think to that's one delivery. issue. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's one issue for sure, right? To mm-hmm. deliver. But there's now there's new way. You know, there's a lot of way to surgically remove and give the medicine. You know, directly. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. But still, for whatever reason, you know, the tumor is just you just barely can cure them. You know. Right. It keep coming back. But until recently, though, I have to say, at Duke, there a lot of new things have been developed, you know, different, a new therapy, way, you know, like immunotherapy, mm-hmm. and different way to make immune response stronger. So slowly getting better, but still, it's a pretty bad cancer type. Yeah. So one of the, one of the issues, it sounds like to me, is that uh, maybe our imaging technology is mm-hmm. not as advanced as, as we would like, that when we see it, on a, an MRI or something, uh, or a CT scan, uh, it's already too advanced. So, is there? Do you know of any? I, I know maybe you're not involved mm-hmm. with this, but do you know maybe any other uh, research into that field where maybe they're trying to improve the imaging technologies to maybe catch a cancer like this earlier? Well, I think that uh, I think the imaging technology is pretty good now. Yeah. Okay. But the 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 issue is this, right? I mean, if you, I mean. Every day, people are not going to say, oh, I'm going to do an image and to sure. see like a brain tumor. Yeah, of <laughs> and frequently, it's yeah. because they experience some, you know, symptoms, such mm-hmm. as seizure, you know, right. or like headache. Right. And then they say, oh, maybe have a look. Mm-hmm. Now, once you have a look, unfortunately, it's a bad cancer, you know, mm-hmm. if it's GBM, yeah. and it's already too pretty late. Right. So the nature of, you know, uh, the genome, the cancer genome, make it almost impossible for you to target them and say, I'm going to kill every cancer cell. Mm-hmm. So as long as they were some cell, they, they come back. You know? right. Yeah. Yeah. So, they're in, so in addition to glioblastoma, yes. you also work on a cancer cell type called meduloblastoma. We did. Oh, yeah. You did. We, we, okay. we are doing a little bit on okay. that. Yeah, that's a pediatric cancer. That's a pediatric cancer. Okay. Yes. So, so in addition to that being a pediatric cancer, what other differences are there between it's, that and glioblastoma? It's clinically a lot more... Uh, so far, have been doing better. Mm-hmm. People with uh, medulloblastoma, they most of the patients, they were young kids, unfortunately, and they were able to survive. Mm-hmm. And frequently, they were even been mostly, I would say, I wouldn't say cure, but were mostly okay. Yeah. So a, a big part, a big fraction of patients are doing okay, mm-hmm. except they were developmentally affected right? Right. because of the toxicity of the treatment. Right. So medulloblastoma is a a pretty Generally speaking, it's a lot less common than GBM, so it's particularly in pediatric. Okay. Yeah. So our focus currently uh, has a lot to do with GBM mm-hmm. because Duke is a big place where right. a lot of glioblastoma patients would come here. Okay. So yeah. So I guess some more specifically yeah. in, in glioblastoma. So glio, I guess, refers to glial cells. Yes. 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 That's so where it comes from. So that's what, that's where the cancer originates from. It's not from neurons, right? So uh, it's probably not. Yeah. It's probably so. But we're not sure yet. Uh, I think from mouse model, we're pretty sure. Okay. Right? From mouse modeling, because that's how a lot of work is done. You know, based on animal modeling, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you get some cell from the animal, and then you do engineering, you know, different engineering, right? And make them, and they say, oh, it developed tumor. 
right? That's one. Right. Another thing is we do know the tumor has a different, you know, based on gene expression, right? The transcriptome. Right. right. We know what kind of cell they look like, kind of. Mm -hmm. So in generally speaking, yes, I think we know it has some. I mean, the tumor has some connection to give grief, right? Okay. That's such as like potentially from astrocyte or optical right. dendrocyte. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I guess just as a as a review, there are several types of cells in the brain. It's not just yeah. neurons. There are yeah, neurons, yeah, yeah, yeah. there are glial yeah. cells which support the neurons, they yeah. produce the myelin sheath, yeah. there are astrocytes, yeah. Yeah. there are a bunch of different cells. No. So astrocytoma is another type of cancer, that yeah. is, right? The, yeah. 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 So I guess yeah. you're able to with some degree of accuracy trace which cell type the cancer originated from. Yes. Right? But it's quite difficult actually, I think, in general, mm -hmm. to determine in human, you know at what stage of development right. or cell differentiation mm -hmm. this cell will become what tumors, right? That's difficult, right. right? Although we can make a guess, you know. Yes. Typically speaking is, you know, in the differentiation, something goes wrong, and the cell would stop normal differentiation. They somehow get into, you know, the cycle of mm -hmm. proliferation, right? Yeah. And defective differentiation and together contribute to eventually make them become tumor cell. Right. So that's the typical way we, we kind of understand how mm -hmm. they evolve. Yeah. Yeah. So the uh, you also so there are a couple of components to, to your research. There's right. the genetic analysis. Yes. And also the epigenetic yes. analysis. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about what the differences between mm -hmm. the two approaches mm -hmm. are? Yeah, I think the conceptually speaking, right, we we believe that genetic is the foundation for virtually all these phenomena, including mm -hmm. epigenetic. Because currently we do know a lot of epigenetic alteration in tumor cell is because we can trace back to gene mutation, right? Such as a histone modifier. You know, if it has mutation, you will see, you know, epigenetic change, right? So there was a lot of lot of finding already genetically. People know what gene can cause epigenetic change, mm. right? When they have mutation, right. so there be loss of function or amplification or gain of function mutation. Right. So I I would say genetic is more fundamental. Mm -hmm. Now epigenetic is a phenomenon that we cannot avoid because it does happen, right? DNA modification, histone modification, they look completely different from normal cell, right? Yeah. And we also know this epigenetic alteration actually is consequential, right? It contributes to tumorigenesis mm -hmm. or contribute to resistance to treatment, right? Right. But frequently, we know what gene caused that. Okay. Yeah. So, so epigenetics, as as uh, to say generally, as an umbrella term, mm -hmm. is kind of the turning on and off of different genes. It, put it very simply. Uh, you it's can. Ba it's based on the compaction of the. Yeah, you can. Oh, the, you the can. The chromatin and. Yeah, you can yeah. almost say that. I would yeah. say it's it's like without changing base pair. Okay. You know, and how the transcription of machinery can recognize, mm -hmm. can interpret the genome, right? The okay. same sequence, same but sequence. With different modification exactly. okay. could be interpreted differently. I see. Yeah. Okay. So you can yeah. probably, yeah, what right. you said is mostly okay. accurate. Yeah. I see. So, so, the, yeah. so epigenetics changes the interpretation of the genetic material by the transcriptional machinery, yeah. uh, which is just DNA to RNA and then yeah. translation to protein. Yeah, including chromatin yeah. structure. Including the chromatin yeah. structure. And then point to add is we do know now metabolism has a lot to do with epigenetics. Metabolism? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. And uh, so, so what you're saying is that uh, the genetics, though, is uh, it, it, it remains more central because you can find genes that 
a loss of function or a mutation or gain of function, these yes. specific genes themselves yes. will cause a difference in the epigenetics. Yes. Of, okay. Yeah. Okay. That that was actually not known until the the big scale genome sequencing had been done. Mm -hmm. You know, early on, right, even ten years ago, that before this all this high throughput sequencing, right, people can just guess. You know, like KRAS. PIK3CA, mm -hmm. P50s, and P53s was well known for right. many years, right? We know all these gene kinase, you know, they EGFR, you mm -hmm. know, if you have gain of function, oncogene, right. tumor suppressor, mm -hmm. APC, P53, right? So, but the, I think the epigenetic regulator, you know, histone modifier, you know, chromatin structure modifier, mm -hmm. you know, all those ATPAs, right. those gene was only discovered after all this next gen sequencing because in most cases, People didn't suspect, you mm -hmm. know, or we, they were not interesting. You right. know. But once you have the next gen sequencing, you know, you sequence the exome easily, mm -hmm. you know, and you find out, oh, this is actually in almost every tumor type. And in majority of patients, you can find them out. Mm -hmm. You know, you can identify particular gene that cause a particular aspect of epigenetic change, you know. So it's really become very pretty, pretty exciting and a rapidly evolving yeah. field, sure. yes. And so you have a lot of experience with uh, see, like genome sequencing analyses. I right? did. In the past, yeah. you, you, you've yeah. done that. So could you explain what sequencing means and what next-generation sequencing means? Yeah. So sequ sequencing really just means the decoding the genome, right, right. to determine A, T, C, G. Exactly. And the, and the gene sequence. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the, I guess the conventional way or traditional way was Sanga sequencing. Mm -hmm. right? Everyone kind of know, you know, you drawn the jaw and you did, and you did yeah. write down the base pair. Right? Mm -hmm. And the next gen sequencing was really in, um, it's like a high throughput way. You know, it's currently available platforms. There are several, but Illumina is the most dominant. Mm -hmm. And in order to do it, I think in 2005 or 06, it started to, they started to have, because of all this development in uh, chemistry, so they were able to develop all these high throughput way of doing sequencing and we can call next-gen sequencing. Mm -hmm. And actually, at that time, I was actually, at the beginning of that, we were actually trying to learn how to do the sequencing, how to make the libraries. Mm. And so, to me, more accurate, my experience is more to do with how to do the sequencing, actually. Ah, okay. I didn't really do myself. I never actually do a complete cancel genome sequencing. Okay. Actually, all my previous work was to do with how to do the sequencing. And when it comes to sequence the first exome, or we actually sequence um, normal cell, mm -hmm. uh, not tumor cell, because normal cell, we just use it as a way to learn how to sequence it. Right. Yeah, it's easier to establish a platform. Mm -hmm. yeah. So next-gen sequencing really means all the currently available high super sequencing. And then now, currently, there's another, like, you know, all this signal molecular sequencing. You know, a lot more advanced, mm -hmm. right? But I think Illumina platform is still a major one. Yeah. And they were purpose, main purpose initially was to discover cancer gene, right? Yeah. You know, oncogene or tumor suppressor. Mm -hmm. But then quickly become, oh, you want to see how the patient's genotype match exactly. to clinic, right? right? To the exactly. syndrome or to the histology or right. to the treatment response. Mm -hmm. And then another aspect is how can we use next-gen sequencing, you know, to identify mutant, DNA, you know, in circulation, you know, yeah. try to do biomarker study, right? Mm -hmm. So there were different way to, uh, to kind of um, utilize the yeah. next gen sequencing technology. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, I yeah. can see a lot of 
great applications for that. Yeah, it had been it had been to combining the the research and the the clinical yeah. so closely. Like it had been very exciting. In, yeah. yeah, it had been very exciting. Yeah. Past so, so, so how has this this combination of the of I guess like bench work, like biomedical molecular uh, research, combined with the uh, the next gen sequencing, how has that informed the the research that you do? So, what specifically? So, I would say you know in the easier way mm-hmm. is that uh, it's it's very easy for personally for me it's very easy to know which gene is, is most likely functionally impactful mm-hmm. you know it's most likely relevant in patient right. so it's very it's pretty easy and mm-hmm. another thing is many people um, if they do not do the genetic you know not a really good genetic uh, cancer genetic uh, experience uh, then it's slightly difficult to you know, for them to understand what genes are important and what genes are not. Another thing is genetic information really has every information we need to predict what this gene does and, you know, in the disease, why it's important and how and when. So for me, it's, this is really helpful. It's like, I would say, uh, even though we are now developing, developing a lot of mouse modeling, you know, doing a lot of biochemistry and functional, but we started with genetic and frequently end with genetics also. Mm. So it's it's a different aspect. We put them together. You know, I feel there is a good combination of genetics and biology, and together. You know. Right. So the, one of the assumptions actually I personally make, and I frequently tell people here is, I would always assume we know very well about cancer. You know, or like for example, the people talk about oh, there's a drug resistant. Genetic heterogeneity. Right. Like, all this seems to be really complicated, but if I feel if we look at these issues from the genetic perspective, they're very simple. Mm-hmm. You know? So one of the focus, uh, kind of I feel there's a different way of thinking, uh, is actually, I would say we understand this disease pretty well. We know how this patient get this disease, how this patient get this, end up with having this particular mutation, you know, before treatment or after treatment. And the main job for us in the lab is actually is to develop or to find a new models or good models or assays that actually can reflect that what happened in patient. Mm-hmm. So in that case, my opinion is it's more likely we make something, make some finding that is relevant. Right. Yeah. So everything right. we do, we compare to see if they make sense together with genetic evidence mm-hmm. from patients. Right. Yeah. So, so before we started recording, yeah. we were actually talking about genetic yeah. heterogeneity, and yes. and so so you said that, uh, and you you mentioned it again that you feel that even though, so I was saying that different cancer types are so different, yeah, that cancer is not one disease, all yeah. these different types, yeah, yeah, yeah. but you felt that it really is the same thing at the core. It's all, it's a genetic disease. So, it is the genetic right. disease. It's a genetic disease, what, I guess, not the same genes in different types of cancer, but it's a genetic disease. But I guess, so, but whether it's, uh, it's, it's, it's the same or different, I guess for different cancers, you would still have to have different approaches, right? Different genetic or immunotherapeutic. Are you uh, talking about treatment? I mean, yeah, first, yes. So now I'm talking about treatment. So even, so... In terms of understanding different cancers, yes. I guess it makes sense to you. You have your molecular biology yeah. techniques, and yeah. you kind of use the same yeah. of set of techniques yes. to understand the, the molecular basis yes. for the tumor genesis for different types of tumors. That mm-hmm. that 
I'm on board with. Mm-hmm. But I guess since the genetics of each cancer is a little bit different, yes. when you talk about treatment, you would yes. still have to have different approaches. Oh, right? uh, yes. 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 Okay. So when it comes to therapeutics, it would right. have to be a different... You, so that's yeah. yeah. So that's one way in which to look at all right. cancer types is a little right. bit different from right. each other. Yeah. Yeah. A typical example is like we always talk about, or people always talk about targeted therapy, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like yeah, precision know, medicine is a exactly, very yeah. big. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, right? It's yeah. Like, yeah, you are correct. Yeah, mm-hmm. because the different gene, you know, is different. Mm-hmm. How it, how important it is, you know, is yeah. different in different cancer types. So mm-hmm. you do have to focus on them. Yeah. 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 Another way is another thing is the different cancer they have different way to deal with the particular microenvironment, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why they would show different uh, genetic profiles. Right. Yeah. yeah. All those can should be considered, right? When we try to develop new treatment in in our view, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and you try to find different way to, you know, so called combination of treatment, right? One thing, one treatment is not going to work. It's exactly. pretty well established. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Right. Exactly. So. You have been working at Duke for how long? Uh, seven years, although. Seven years? Yes. So uh, how did you get into this field? Or how did you end up at Duke? Well, what got you interested so I, in uh, science or...? So I was initially... I mean, I I actually did, do not know how I got interested in science. It seemed <laughs> to be nature, right? Kind uh-huh. of like, oh, you want to learn this and you want to figure things out. Mm-hmm. And then you, it it's happened to be, you just like it and you happen to, you know, have a teacher who interact with you and give you the opportunity and right. educate you, it got into. And uh, I initially f- coming from China. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was in a, the graduate school in China and then everyone wanted to come to U.S. for graduate school. So I was lucky enough to get into uh, a graduate school in U.S. Mm-hmm. and. And that was in University of Pennsylvania, and uh, initially we were studying cell and molecular biology. So I was actually studying developmental biology, okay. uh, like hematopoiesis mm-hmm. development. And then after that, I went to Hopkins and started to do cancer genetic. And I did a training with Bert Wolverstein. So his lab is a big laboratory doing all this genome sequencing stuff. But in particular, as I said, just said to you, I was really more focusing on how to perform sequencing, sure. develop technique, you know, like developing new technology and set up a new, very, very simple essay, you know, that as long as it, nobody has done it, we, <laughs> we like it, you know, try to, try to make things work, you mm-hmm. know, and, and then, uh, so, and, so they were, if you do that, then there were two ways to go, right? One is, you continue to, you know, optimize the technique and then incorporate new technology, right, and do more sequencing. Right and find biomarkers, do the mutant, you know, identify mutant DNA and find out how to do the biomarker, you know, the mutant DNA as a biomarker in the clinic. Another way is you started to think about what this mutation, you know, what this mutated mutated gene, you know, how they do, you know, how they do promote, how they promote tumor, right. you know, and how can we use them and to understand how they work. So, so it was a pretty reasonable two way to go. And uh, I was lucky enough to, you know, have a position at Duke. So I came here and we started to try to, we know a lot of genes that are important in brain tumor. So uh, we started to try to set up a model, you know, mouse model, in vitro model. Right. And then how to, I mean, then biology, that's one key thing that I have been trying to do. And then how to... I think at this moment we are able to balance biology and genetic pretty well, mm-hmm. and I would still say genetic is the core and basis. Right. And and 
try to use biology to interpret them. Mm-hmm. So that's what current work. So, so you're you're differentiating genetics and biology. So when you do that, what do you, what do you mean by genetics and what do you mean by biology? So genetic hybridity means everything, every gene that has a mutation, mm-hmm. the cancer genomes. You know how the cancer genome looks like. You know in different brain tumor, and they have very different genomes, right? And how how they look, how why they are different, why this gene is mutated there but not in the other type of cancer, right? Now when I say biology, it's more like an experimental stuff. You know, like mouse model, for example. Right. You know, so one of the the assumption is this: is if you you build a new assay or new models, you know, or some new models, and then you do some test, and you we fear that well, this all these findings seem to fit well with patients' genetic data, right? That's always the place we go to is to double check with whatever will happen in patients, right? And then we fear this model now potentially has value. Now, you can make an assumption that if you use model to do new things, right, then hopefully the finding will more likely to be right or to be relevant. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think it's difficult. You, it's not helpful to absolutely separate biology and genetics. Yes, yes. But approach-wise, they are different. Yeah, that's right. But true. we always want to use the as much genetic information as possible to guide what we do in the lab. You know, every experimental model are artificial. Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah, as long as absolutely. we have a criteria, yeah. we know what to compare to to help us mm-hmm. to know how good the advance and these events, I think it's very helpful yeah. and it's very important for yeah. us. Yeah. So we yeah. spend a lot of time thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, currently. Yeah. So you, yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, the uh, and this is, I guess, something that I've mentioned in mm-hmm. of, of a few episodes of the show now. Maybe people mm-hmm. are getting tired mm-hmm. of it, but a model, in essence, mm-hmm. is imperfect and that it's not the exact same thing as what we see in nature in this case a mouse model won't be the exact same uh tumor that we that we generate in a mouse won't have the exact same features of a tumor that we would find in a human patient right every mother has right good and bad exactly and but i guess what, what you're saying is you know you try to do the best you can to get as close to the patient yes uh, genotype and phenotype, yes. right? Yes. Uh, as possible. Yes. To, to, so that any information that you do get from an experiment involving a mouse model is, like you're saying, mm-hmm. relevant and mm-hmm. informative of yeah. the patient. So mouse model it is one one of the tools. Right? Right. And another one we do here, actually in the brain tumor center, we frequently now get the get the patient, you know, when the patient is treated here, we get the tumor tissue from them and we capture them. Right. And make the in vitro mm-hmm. uh, like a human cell models as yeah. well, and oh. put them back into mice nice. to generate right. genograms. Exactly. Right? So yeah. another belief is that uh, for many conclusions we try to make, we always want to have more than one models. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to have several exactly. models, and yeah. we want to say we we hope we're looking for the place where they can fit or or interpret genetic data in patient, and the place where they wouldn't interpret, right? And yeah. so that we have a better idea, you know, exactly. the, the, the upside and downside right. for each one of them, yes. Yeah. yeah. So I guess if you have something like a, a patient-derived tissue that you put into a mouse or a mouse model, and let's say you're doing an experiment and you you have your hypothesis and you set up your experiment with these, these, these mm-hmm. two arms, mm-hmm. and then if you get data that looks similar or the same in both, that kind mm-hmm. of, so that that, mm-hmm. I guess would you say is a really strong indication yeah. that you're, you're on happy. the right track. You're and on the right you're track. Happy, yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that, that's that's a 
and that's important in science is, yeah. is to not just do one experiment yeah, you and, always, and, and, then, and then get a good result and then sit back. Any, you have to repeat it. You have to do it in a different way. Always, you, have yeah. to, yeah. you always want to have several models. Right? Right. And then you see where they overlap mm-hmm. and where they are not consistent. Now, in the case of, let's say you find a discrepancy in a different, you want to try to have an explanation why so. Right? And then in that case, you can reasonably draw a conclusion that you feel comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. So. Exactly. So on on this, I guess, note, is there any piece of advice or comments that you would like to give to people that are interested in science, uh, young scientists, maybe people just starting a PhD like myself, or someone in the middle of a PhD? What would you say to them? I I would say uh, if I have to give some, I would say you have to really feel that you like it. I mean, if you really do laboratory research, uh, if you enjoy, you know, experimental medicine, it means that, you, I mean, you just have to like it, you right. know, like, some people, like, when they pipette, they're very happy, mm-hmm. you know, they feel like a peace of mind, <laughs> enjoying it, the process, you know? Are you one of those people? I am yeah. definitely one of them. You are, yeah, because you're smiling right now. <laughs> I, I, not just, I'm pipetting, it's just one of them. <laughs> but what I mean is, mm-hmm. if you enjoy working in a lab, yep. I think... I think it's very important. Yes. Now, some some people may not like that much, but they have a different idea. You know, they want to explore. That's fine too. You know, you do not have to really. I would say there were some people who really liked you know, or a good experiment. You know, they want to do experiment. They want to, right? But there were some people who probably are not as good, but they have a good eye, good hunch. You know, like a feeling about right. the. They have imagination. You know, they have idea. They want to test. I think you don't want it to good, but the but. But uh, I feel one thing that's very important is actually we do research in the lab to it, have a very clear purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, when we were student, when I, at least when I was student, we were like all the teaching is about oh you have to understand the concept, the logic, how to design the experiment, to understand the mechanism. But uh, I would say it's very important for every researcher to realize that if you know if curiosity is good things. But if you put the curiosity into a contact with a purpose, mm-hmm. that's much better. Right. I mean, we always would keep in mind the patients. Mm-hmm. You know, like, how can this help our patients? Exactly. So when you design a project or when you think about the mechanism, you know, the first things I think we would want to think about is how can, if we answer this question, can it remotely possible that it will end up with helping our patients? Mm-hmm. Now, if you have that, I think you feel your work is a lot more meaningful and significant. Yeah. Now, any difficulty or frustration, disappointment, you feel, you, you deal with, not as bad. Right. So in that case, it makes your work a little bit more enjoyable. Right. And working with good people are very important. Of course. You know, not just a project. You know, good mm-hmm. people turn projects into very interesting stuff. And sometimes people who are not as motivated or not as fun... They make project not as interesting. Right. Very important. Right. Very you know, not, important. Not just what you work on, mm-hmm. who you're working with. Great. Exactly. Very important. So takeaway is two two important things. Perspective. Yes. And then good people. Good people. I, I, I know some good people. I have some good people in my life. Shouts out to my good people at NYU. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sure yeah. there were a lot of good people at NYU. <laughs> Trust me on that. Yeah. Research yeah. yeah. environment is very important. Yeah. It, make, sure. it sometimes makes you feel almost like... I. 
very honest, I frequently would prefer to be in a lab than having a vacation. I always feel <laughs> very stressed when I'm in vacation. But in a lab, it's always you feel sure. like... Yeah. I mean, there's always something cool going on. There's always, always good always conversations cool to, 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 to be had. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I, I completely Yeah, understand. a lot of challenges. But yeah. occasionally you do good, nice things and fun things to happen. Mm-hmm. Good things happen. <laughs> good things happen in labs, everybody. If you work e- hard. Everybody work hard. Find a lab and go work hard. Yes. <laughs> yes, right. I will say yeah. that. Dr. Yiping Yi, thank you very much for chatting with me. I appreciate you being here. Thank you for stopping by. Happy to do it. Yeah, it's thank fun. You. Thank you. Termination of current scientist the human episode. Stay breezy.